you guys can have a seat. Well, good morning. Uh, if you're here for the first time, know that we are so glad you're with us today. You know, something uh, for you to know about our church is that we are unapologetically a globally-minded church. You know, our, our vision statement as a church uh, includes the world on purpose. We exist to see G- Jesus change lives and to reach the world. Uh, and this is not some special, unique vision just for New City Church. No, this is the heart of God. You know, God deeply cares for all people all over the world, and so we as a church, we're going to do whatever it takes to get the gospel to the ends of the earth to those who have never heard the name of Jesus. And, and yes, absolutely, we're going to do the same thing uh, here in the Tampa Bay area to do whatever it takes to reach our neighbors and our city and all the people that God has brought to our city. Now, we're here in Tampa on purpose and for a purpose, and I've been saying this a lot recently. Uh, We're a broken church for broken people, and here in Tampa, we're going to dive headfirst into brokenness in our own lives and into the lives of those around us. And today, we're going to talk about that and what that looks like and how it manifests itself in our own lives and also in our city. But something we as a church, as long as I'm a pastor here, by God's grace, will hopefully not lose sight of, is that God's heart is for the entire world. You know, and what God has done in my own life to fan that overarching truth and just kind of a, a a zealous reality and a burden is to, by God's grace, just send me to places and see with my own two eyes to see a real life, uh, to see this as a real life, tangible reality, to send me to places where the name of Jesus is not known and, and where the gospel is widely misunderstood or, or misunderstood or skewed or just flat out rejected. And my hope and prayer is that many of you uh, will be able to do the same uh, through short-term trips in the years to come. But in these uh, in these places like South Asia or Central Asia and the Middle East and parts of Europe, I've literally seen with my own two eyes grown men bow down and worship a small one-foot st- uh, tall statue that, of a God that doesn't exist. And I've seen farmers cry out and pray and sing and dance to a God that does not exist, pleading, pleading for this God to bring rain for their crops uh, and harvest. You know, I've been in taxis and cars where the driver has objects kind of dangling from the rearview mirror and in the, or maybe in the back of the car underneath the bumper uh, with the hopes that they'll have protection. You know, I've, been, I've been in temples on tops of mountains where, where people worship a statue of Buddha uh, or uh, sitting on the floor barefoot, face down, chanting with candles and incense kind of all around them, longing for peace and serenity. And I've walked through markets uh, where little idols can be bought and purchased uh, for people to keep, to be worshipped in various ways. I mean, we could go on and on about these vivid e- images and memories that I just kind of burnt into my brain. Uh, and seeing people beg and plead and worship a physical idol representing a God that does not exist. And then just being able to share Jesus with them and discuss the God of the Bible who made both them and the world and talk about our God that loves them and desires to speak with them through his word and gave them a purpose for their life and being able to share the good news of the gospel with them and then seeing them respond in faith and reject these other false gods. I mean, just being a part of that is something that I want to see done over and over and over again for many years to come, which is a major part of why we planted and started New City Church. Because we want to be a church that sends people to those who have never heard the name of Jesus. And where many of them worship idols and statues, trying to appease a God that does not exist. So they can have peace and protection and comfort and provision and purpose and identity and meaning and salvation. And so we're going to do whatever it takes to get the good news of Jesus to these people all over the world. But I say all of that. And I'm so burdened for all of that, but the reality is, in a lot of ways, we're no different. You know, you and me, 
uh, and all those around us in our city, we may not worship and bow down to idols and statues and burn incense or make chants and dances to these physical statue idols, but yet every single one of us, whether we want to admit it or not, we have our own little idols that we're prone to worship. They just don't look like statues sitting on a shelf. Rather, they're formed in our hearts. You know, as John Calvin has famously said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us, from his mother's womb, an expert in inventing idols. And so in some of these houses where I've been, just in different parts of the world, you know, just kind of pay attention here. I've, I've seen people worship Jesus and hang a picture of Jesus on their wall in their living room and right next to it, or maybe below it, is a picture of Buddha or uh, Brahma or Vishnu or other gods showing uh, they worship Jesus and then also these other little G-gods. Now us Bible-believing Christians uh, who come to church and maybe grew up in church, people like uh, some of you and me, we would never hang up on our wall. We would never hang that up on, our, on the wall of our house because intellectually we know better. Uh, but if we looked inside of our hearts, they probably wouldn't look much different. Now, there's no hiding that um, I'm not an interior decorator. My wife is clearly the one in our house with style and fashion. You know, she's an artist. Uh, she's been in the creative industry for several years, and it's just kind of her thing. She makes things look nice. Uh, happy 12-year anniversary, Kelly. I love you uh, whenever you get to listen to this. But, you know, and well, uh, me, I'm, I'm basically a bump on a log when it comes to decorating, Okay. Uh, like style and aesthetics, it's just something I kind of, I don't naturally think about. Like I've, I've learned a lot over time being married to Kelly, um, but I was totally that dude in college that saw a large white blank wall, okay? And I would put whatever picture or poster I had on that said wall, um, just like a large massive wall, maybe just put like a tiny little picture on the wall, kind of off-center, probably doesn't match anything, just kind of there, and then over time, slowly kind of add to the wall. I thought it looked great, right? Uh, just like add a shelf and some sports trophies, all the participation trophies I got as a kid. Uh, maybe add a picture of my family, maybe an inspirational poster, uh, a bunch of random knickknacks I collected over time. That was just kind of my way of decorating. Um, you know, none of it matched or, or went together, just kind of a, a huge hodgepodge of stuff. Maybe some of you can relate with this, uh, or maybe some of you uh, just love to decorate. And are good at making things look good. Uh, wherever you are on the spectrum of decorating, uh, whether, it's, uh, whether your walls are completely empty, empty or a hodgepodge of stuff or full of style, today we're going to see how we decorate the walls of our hearts. And maybe if we looked inside the walls of our hearts, maybe it would seem empty saying uh, you don't believe anything, um, but don't be fooled. We all have something hanging in our hearts. And maybe we find a picture of Jesus. Uh, maybe it's, uh, it's at the center. Um, some days it's not. Or maybe hanging next to it, next to that picture of Jesus in the wall of our hearts, we see the God of uh, our career or the God of our bank account or the God of our family or comfort or future or success or sex or entertainment or sports or appearance or body image or friendship or school or power or control or stuff or just fill in the blank. There's thousands of these things that we may hang up in our hearts as just little gods next to Jesus because as John Calvin has rightly said, our hearts are a factory of idols. And maybe we could say, kind of going off of our illustration, we're, we're restless decorators and we're always wanting to add more to the wall. And these idols in our life 
are continually made in every season and they're, they're made in every stage of life and we continually have to crush them and destroy them and remove them off the walls of our hearts. Because as we'll see today, Jesus Christ is the only God that deserves to be hung up in the wall of our hearts to be worshipped. So as followers of Jesus, we intellectually know that in our head, but as the old hymn reminds us, our hearts are prone to wonder. You know, our hearts are continually, uh, continually make little, little idols that we often don't realize are being made. And so my hope today, after looking at Exodus 32, where we see God's people physically make an idol of a golden calf, my hope is that we will be spurred on to go to war and remove and destroy the idols hanging in our hearts, which leads, me, leads us to our main idea today. Jesus came to be our one true God. Jesus came to be our one true God. He came to be the only thing hanging in the wall of our hearts to be adored and worshipped. And again, intellectually, we know that, as, that Christianity, we know that Christianity is a monotheistic religion with just one God. But let's not be fooled. As we peek into our hearts, we can be more polyistic than we'd like to think or admit, maybe. Again, New City Church, our God is a jealous God. God doesn't want to hang in our hearts as one among many other gods to be worshipped by us. No, Jesus came to be our one true God. And so if you're not a Christian here today, or maybe, maybe you're watching online, I hope that you will see by the end of our time that Jesus is worthy of being the only God worthy of our worship. And I'm praying that you would put your trust in Jesus today and that we would uh, let him search out our hearts for all the little idols that come creeping into our lives uh, that don't and won't fully satisfy us. Uh, we may think they do or think they will, and maybe they will temporarily, but let me tell you, I know from personal experience, they will always eventually disappoint us. They satisfy us just long enough to make us realize they're empty and false gods because that's what these idols in our lives do. And so that said, let's go, we're going we're gonna to be in Exodus 32 and look at this popular Old Testament passage on idols. Uh, we're going to look at it in four different terms, okay? Number one, the making of idols. Number two, the power of prayer. Number three, the destruction of idols. And number four, our need for Jesus. That's where we're going. Okay? And over the past several weeks, we've been looking at really large sections, multiple chapters at a time, looking at God's law and tabernacle, seeing God's interaction with Moses on Mount Sinai, everything he said to Moses on top of that mountain. But today, we're focused entirely on chapter 32. And so just kind of as a refresher, um, kind of for us of the bigger story, where we are in Exodus, you know, several weeks back, we saw Israel kind of go camping and make their temporary home on the, at the foot of Mount Sinai. We saw God come down and bring uh, with thunder and lightning and smoke. And then Moses went up the mountain to hear from God. God made a promise to God's people that if they obeyed everything God said, that he would give them land and prosperity. And then Moses heard from God, which is all that we've looked at over the past few weeks, like the Ten Commandments and the, all those mosaic laws and rules and the tabernacle and how to build it and the furniture that goes in it and the clothes that the priests are to wear, who's supposed to build it, the cleansing ceremonies that are to have when entering the tabernacle in order to get into God's presence. And we've, we've looked at parts of Exodus that typically just get passed over. But hopefully, we've seen from a big picture perspective that this is part of Exodus. This part of Exodus, it's wildly important. And, you know, and back in chapter 24, if you remember, you know, God kind of gave them, gave, gave Israel, kind of gave them an inspiring halftime speech in the middle of all of these instructions. And they were all fired up. They were ready to go. And God's people said, everything you say, 
we will do. <laughs> well, today we see God's people just totally mess everything up, okay? Uh, it's like immediate. I mean, it's like uh, Moses, before Moses even gets down the mountain, they disobey. You know, it's kind of like telling a kid, see that button right there? Don't touch that button. What do they do? They immediately touch the button. That's what Israel has done. Look at the end of chapter 30, 31, right before our passage. Uh, we're going to walk through this entire story and explain it and give kind of a few points as we go. But look at uh, verse 18 in chapter 31. I'll just kind of give us a running start here. He, and he gave to Moses, kind of that, that being God, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So God, God finished speaking, uh, gave, gave him everything written down on two stone tablets. And then uh, look what happens next in chapter 32. We're going to read a bigger section here where we begin our passage today. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the ring of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the ring of gold that were in the ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Leading us to our very first point. Number one, the making of idols. Again, we just read they made the golden calf. Uh, but what I want to point out, I want to point out several things here. You know, we just saw in verse one, before Moses ever made it down the mountain, God's people, they get together and they go to Aaron, who, by the way, if, if you remember Aaron from last week, God uh, was just outlining up on the mountain his plans for Aaron and his sons and his high priest. And so while God, unknown to Aaron, was making plans for Aaron and his people for how they can be used in God's tabernacle for God's purposes, while all of that's happening behind the scenes, Aaron and the people are being impatient. <laughs> and they get together and they start doubting together. I mean, God is working and speaking and making plans for his people behind the scenes, all the while his very people he was making plans for were filled with doubt and unbelief. I mean, has anybody, I mean, has anybody ever been there? I know I have. I mean, just far, far too many times to count. And so the very man God desired to use was easily led astray because he got impatient. And he quickly disobeyed and made a golden calf. He made a false god. Uh, he made an idol with his own hands. But what I find interesting about this is that the very materials that God intended to use for the building of the tabernacle, for everything inside of that most holy place where God's presence would be, what we saw a few weeks ago, those materials of gold were, were then used to make a false god. And maybe, maybe you remember this verse from the end of Genesis. It says, what man intended for evil, God meant for good. Well, here we see the exact opposite. What God meant for evil, man used for good. Which for us today may be the way many of the idols of our heart are constructed. I mean, for example, God made us to work and we were created to work. 
But our, our idol factory hearts, we often turn work into an idol, putting our career above the Lord, putting our identity maybe in our work instead of Jesus, putting our well-being and how good or bad work is going. And we see, we see the same thing out, play out in so many areas of our life, like school or friendships or comforts or family or marriage and sports or church or serving. And I'm no mind reader, but I bet if we looked at some of our emotions like fear and anxiety and worry or loneliness or some of our other insecurities that we all have, we all have some of them, you know, if we dig long enough, we may find an idol that was unknowingly, or maybe we know it, that has been hung up in the wall of our hearts. And I want to be careful here because our emotions are real. I know that. Identifying idols in our hearts isn't going to fix all of our hurt or stress or whatever is going on, but it certainly will help us as a small part of the equation. I know this isn't always the case, okay, but, but for example, you know, someone is constantly worried about money. Again, not always the case. But if we dig, I bet we, wouldn't, I bet we would be able to find the, maybe the idolatry of status or comfort or material possessions, like always wanting the next best thing, or maybe from a different angle, the idolatry of stability and security, and, and in money and not in Jesus. I mean, just name anything good, something good, and if we're not careful, we can, uh, it can slowly creep into becoming an idol. We can make it something that we put our affections towards that burn hotter than our affections for Jesus. That, is, that at its core is what, is what an idol is. Anything we've we place at the same level or above Jesus to be worshipped. And, and I know I'm very well, this can seem like a kind of a heaping guilt, but hang with me here. We do have good news, I promise. Uh, but before we can grasp the glory of the good news, we need to wrap our heads around the bad news. And so just as a litmus test, this is another little thing to think about. If we're driven and zealous at school or work or in the gym or with some sort of uh, social or cultural issues or with friends or yet our affection, and yet our affections for Jesus are squelched and dim. Again, I'm no mind reader, but if we chase the smoke to a fire, I bet we would find quite possibly a small view of God and in turn an elevated idol. And so, well, what do we do with this? Because that really hurts. Uh, Well, we'll get to that. Um, And so, hang tight, okay? And just another thing to note here. uh, Notice what they did after Aaron made the golden calf. They deceived themselves and they twisted the truth. Because that's what false gods and idols do. They're deceptive. Verse 4, it literally says, They said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, which we know is a bold-faced lie. I mean, they, they completely deceived themselves here. In fact, this golden calf that they made was a form of a pagan god that was worshipped back in Egypt. And so here... Uh, what we see them turn back to a false god that they know has already failed them, but yet they worshipped it anyways. And then in verse 5 and 6, we see that they had the audacity to build an altar before the golden calf and make two different offerings to it. And in the process, they thought they were making a feast to the Lord. And then it says they ate and they drank and they rose up to play. And what's crazy is that they thought they were pleasing the Lord in doing this. Again, they've deceived themselves. Again, sin and idolatry is by nature deceptive. Look what God says in response. Verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. 
They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. (laughs) God tells Moses, Your people have corrupted themselves. Uh, They've turned aside quickly from the way I commanded them. They're worshipping this golden calf, thinking that the golden calf brought them out of Egypt where they were enslaved, or we know just from by looking back at the story that it was God that brought them out. And he looks at Moses as he sees these people, and he calls them. He calls these people a stiff-necked people. And so let's just think about this for just a second. Let's kind of zoom out uh, and remember this whole story in Exodus. Because these people, Israel, that made this golden calf, they were enslaved to Egypt. Beginning of, at the beginning of Exodus, under the rule of a terrible ruler named Pharaoh, uh, like he, they were in terrible bondage, doing painful labor, uh, and they couldn't keep up. They were miserable. And God had compassion on them and saw them. And God delivered them through a string of miraculous events. I mean, God literally brought 10 plagues down on Egypt. God's people flee towards the Red Sea with thousands of men and horses charging after them. And God literally opens up the Red Sea. He parted the sea for them. They walk through on dry ground. And God's people make it through where Egypt was swept up. And God's people are free. They're no longer slaves, but free. They sing and praise the Lord, amazed by God's goodness. And then three after three days of difficulty... After this, they want, they, they want to turn around and go back. And they start grumbling. <laughs> and then God in his kindness delivers them again. And they start moving again. And they end up in a wilderness and they grumble again. And then God comes through again. And every day while they're in the wilderness, God literally provides for them bread and quail from heaven. Like all they have to do, they have to go outside and pick it up and they eat. I mean, every day God literally provided them provided for them, and yet God's people grumbled, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. And then God shows up again on Mount Sinai. They're fired up, ready to obey again, and it's this constant cycle of God showing up in miraculous ways time and time again, and then after a short amount of time, God's people are led to doubt, fear, and unbelief. And here we are today in Exodus 32, yet again with a faithless Israel. They experience a little stress for 40 days while Moses is up on the mountain, And they start to panic. And they made a golden calf. And that, my friends, is why God looks at them and says, you stiff-necked people. (laughs) Because God keeps showing up in miraculous ways and working on their behalf. And as soon as they experience a little stress and tension, they forgot the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And we hear this story, and I've read this story many, many times, and every time, almost every time I read this story, it cuts me to the heart. Because I don't know about you, but I am often the exact same way. And if I don't day in and day out remember the Lord's goodness and faithfulness, I too, just like each of us in here, can and will turn to other idols that we think will be a better God. But just like we can look at Israel and clearly see their foolishness, may we not forget we can be the exact same way when we worry about just fill in the blank or turn to other things that we think will make our hearts happy and satisfied. Just like Israel did with the golden calf that led them to eat and drink and rise up to play, which we know from 1 Corinthians 10, Paul said that was a a path of sin and destruction. And yet they traded their incredible God for a small, worthless golden calf that has no power and cannot save them. 
And God sees it and recognizes the tragedy of what they've done. Of what they've done. And then he says in verse 10, God says, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God sees what they've done, and as it says, he says his wrath burns hot against them. Again, God hates and despises sin. And they've clearly sinned against God. In fact, uh, they broke the very first commandment, like the very first one, God said. God said, uh, make no, God said, no other gods before me. And then God goes on to explain it. And he says, don't make any carved images. And then what do they do? They go and make a golden calf. And so not only did they sin against God, but remember, after that commandment, they made a covenant with God. And they promised. They promised that they would obey. This would be like making a vow to your spouse and then a week into the honeymoon just cheating on them. I mean, just literally immediate, almost immediate. I mean, God's people in this moment deserves the wrath of God. He wanted to make them into a great nation, but this garbage they're trying to pull off, it wasn't going to cut it. Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So here Moses, he saw the Lord's anger. I mean, he, like, he, he sees the Lord's anger and his wrath burning hot against his people. And then Moses pleaded. He implored the Lord. He made a case before the Lord saying, remember your promise. Remember your promise to the people that have gone before them, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses pleaded with God in verse 14. He was praying and pleading and interceding on their behalf and, and to, to relent of his wrath, to hold back, begging God to hold back his wrath. And we saw at the end, we saw at the end, God relented. God showed grace and mercy. God held back his wrath on his people because of Moses' pleading prayer. So that was our second point. Number two, the power of prayer. New City Church, let's not lose sight of this. God listens to the prayers of his people. He answers them. God answers prayer. God loves to answer our prayer. You know, this past week I was reading the Bible to my, my six-year-old son, Stockton, before bed. And he said to me, Daddy, why does God not answer all of my prayers? And I asked him, I was like, what are you talking about, buddy? Like, what prayers are not being answered? Uh, And he he said, I've been praying for superpowers, and I don't have them. (laughs) And I was like, well, what what superpowers are you praying for? And he said, I want to have freezing powers where I can freeze people. I guess Elsa was coming in and, you know, thinking about we were seeing Let It Go, you know, with the the storm coming in. And I said, why do you want to, who do you want to freeze? And he said, my sister's. I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, buddy. I don't think God's going to answer that prayer. I don't think your sisters would like that. And I was like, praise the Lord that God does not answer all of our prayers, especially six-year-old boys. 
uh, because we would be terrible gods. You know, but here in Exodus 32, we see that Moses pleaded with God, not for his own benefit and power, but rather he called out and pleaded to God's character, and he pleaded on behalf of God's faithfulness and God's goodness and his promises and his power. And he pleaded with God on behalf of those that didn't trust him, saying, how would Egypt, like how would Egypt look at this? New City Church, again, prayer works. It works. And may we plead for others and intercede for others. And as we do, may we use this model that we see here, pleading on behalf of God's faithfulness and promises and and his power and his goodness. And no, God's not a genie and he doesn't work like a math formula or an equation where if we say all the right things, he'll answer all of our prayers. No, but we need to remember that God knows all things. He sees everything and he is good. And in fact, it's in God's kindness that he doesn't answer a lot of our prayers. Which again, I reminded my girls of this week. (laughs) But may we learn to pray and pray according to God's will and not ours. May we pray according to God's character and not to make ourselves great. Just just a question. I ask this oftentimes myself. I just kind of evaluate my prayer life. You know, if all of our prayers were answered, if all of my prayers were answered, who would we reap the benefits? I mean, would we be the only benefactor? That's convicting, and we have to think about that. Moses pleaded with God according to God's character and on behalf of others. And so may we not lose sight of praying for God's people to save and to call people out of darkness and interceding on their behalf for God to save and to restore, and for God to show his faithfulness like he always does for other people. May we be a people that plead and beg and get on our faces for other people, for each other in our, in our church, for people in our city, for people all over the world. We know that God is a jealous God, and so may we pray for God to destroy idols and strongholds in each other's lives. So let's keep, let's keep moving here so we can get into our next point. Look, starting in verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. In his hand, tablets were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to the powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So here we see Moses kind of come down the mountain with these tablets that God wrote. I mean, just think about the importance of these tablets. I mean, God himself (laughs) wrote it. I mean, verse 16 said, the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God. They're, They're vitally important. And then we see that Joshua meets Moses and they together see everybody singing down at the bottom of the mountain, but it wasn't what they'd expect. And they were worshiping and dancing before this golden calf. And Moses, who just interceded on their behalf, saw that they were doing, saw that what they were doing, and he too burned hot, as he says in verse 19. And Moses threw the tablets on the ground because he knew and he saw for himself that the covenant was broken. Everything Israel did, everything Israel said they would do, they did not do. They broke, Israel broke their end of the promise. And Moses takes the calf and he destroys it. And he burns it with fire, puts the ashes in water, and he makes the people drink it. 
This leads us to our third point. Number three, the destruction of idols. We see here this destruction of idols, both how they affect us and then also that we need to destroy them. You know, John Owen has famously said, kill sin or it will be killing you. Well, today maybe we can kind of rephrase that and say destroy idols or they may destroy us. Again, we need to ask, what have we elevated in our life as an idol that has been placed above God? Or maybe it holds the same weight as God. Maybe it's people. Maybe it's security. Maybe it's body image. Maybe it's work or school or respect. Maybe it's uh, indulging in our flesh. Whatever it is, we all have them. Some of them may may clearly be sin, and some of them may be good things that we've just given too much weight in our life. And as we see Moses do, we need to go to war on them and destroy them and remove them off the wall of our hearts as gods in our life. Because let's look further and see uh, the effects they can have, starting in verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, and they, they are set on, on, on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go up before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what he has become of him. So I said to them, Let any of you have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me. And I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. (laughs) And he's like, I don't know what happened. Like, how did it happen? I don't know. They just kind of brought me gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out popped this calf. I mean, Aaron has completely lost his mind. I mean, not only does he look like a fool here, but he's blaming everyone else when he was the one that made the thing. I mean, it said he, like, fashioned it together. He said in verse 22, you know the people that they are set on evil. And he's saying it as if he's completely innocent. So he's blame shifting and he's minimizing and he's justifying what's happened. He didn't take any responsibility for his actions. This is what sin and evil and idolatrous hearts do. When we idolize our reputation or being right, or when we idolize what people think to save face, we start to justify or minimize or we blame other people. And y'all, there's so much we could say here. Let's keep reading. To finish our third point, look at verse 25. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your, on, on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So as we kind of continue the story here, we see that Aaron let all the people out to break loose. And Moses is like, whoever is with the Lord, come with me. And the sons of Levi, they joined him. And then we see something uh, that that may seem strange to us. Moses says, go and kill everyone who, in essence, is against the Lord. And on that day, 3,000 people were killed. And because of what they did, they were often ordained and dedicated. They They were ordained and dedicated to the Lord because of what they did which I'm guessing may leave you scratching your head a bit, like uh, wondering why would this be a cause to be dedicated to the Lord? 
I mean, they killed 3,000 people. That doesn't seem very loving. And for situations like this, I am so thankful uh, when the Bible explains itself. Okay, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, he says uh, about these things, that these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And so in essence, this passage is a warning for us. A warning to flee from sin, to notice the destruction of idolatry, which Paul tells us was most likely sexual idolatry here in Exodus. And so brothers and sisters, be warned. Idolatry, specifically sexual idolatry, as, as, as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, is an, it's incredibly destructive. Be warned. And so we see the extreme severity of sin. But also, on the other side, this is a picture of extreme grace for the sons of Levi. Christian, hear that today. (laughs) If you have turned to the Lord and chosen to be on the Lord's side, that is a radical and a scandalous grace in your life. We don't deserve second chances, but because of the gospel, God gives them to us over and over and over again. And if you're here today walking with the Lord, God has shown you scandalous grace, way more than you could ever imagine. And every day, because of the cross, we get a new beginning and a fresh start. Christian, don't lose sight of that. God makes all things new. God restores all things, which is where we start to see our last point, number four, our need for Jesus. But before we get ahead of ourselves, I want to read the last part of our text to paint a better picture of our need. Look, starting at verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So after these 3,000 people were killed, Moses, uh, Moses goes back up the mountain to intercede again on behalf of the people, asking for God to forgive them. And notice what he said in verse 32. Moses said, if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. This is astounding, right? Moses was willing to lose his life for the sake of Israel. Moses knew that in order for sin to be forgiven, a sacrifice was needed. Moses was willing to be substituted in for the sake of Israel, which is what Jesus did for us at the cross. He was substituted in our place. And look at what God says, starting in verse 33. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. The Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So God declares his judgment in verse 33 by saying, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. And then we see it again in verse 35 by sending a plague. Like they, he sent a plague. But notice God's mercy in verse 34. He said, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. So in spite of their rebellion, God showed mercy. But it was only temporary because as we saw, judgment, it still came. And as God said, whoever sinned against God would be blotted out of his book. 
And as we've seen today, Israel, they didn't make it past even the first commandment. Israel couldn't wait for Moses to come down and hear what God would say. So all of, that, all of this we see, number four, our need for Jesus. We need daily mercy and grace. We need ongoing and eternal forgiveness. Moses, he could not be a sufficient sacrifice. He offered himself, but Moses was not good enough. Moses wasn't holy enough. And what is made abundantly clear in our text today is that God is incredibly holy while God's people are remarkably rebellious. Each of us, all of us, have a natural bent towards rebellion. Maybe it's towards the pleasures of the world, or maybe our rebellion looks a little nicer, like living for the praise of men or, put, or, or putting the opinions of others above the way God sees us. Again, Israel's hearts, our hearts, as Calvin has said, are a factory of idols. And brothers and sisters, because of that, we need Jesus. Our heart idolatry problem at its core, it is a worship problem. We hang Jesus on the wall of our hearts. And throughout our days, we start hanging these other things where only Jesus deserves to be placed. And as we close today, I want us to see two different ways to just to, to help with our idolatry problem, where we put other things above or beside where only Jesus deserves to be placed. You know, the most obvious way is to just keep taking the idols down that we keep putting up. All right, this is kind of like our defense strategy. Every day, you and I both, we need to go to war on the idols of our heart and notice them and remove them and to take them down. And I wouldn't be surprised if the same idols that we keep putting up there and keep taking down, maybe even for many, many years. And until Jesus comes back, we all need to continually be at war with the idols in our heart because we're broken people living in a broken world where these idols keep getting hung up in our hearts. But on the flip side, the other way is our offensive strategy. And it's to make that picture of Jesus is hanging on the wall of our hearts a lot bigger. Like, it needs to take up the whole wall. There needs to be no room for anything else. I mean, most of our idolatry and worship problems are similar to my decorating problems. It's because we have a tiny little picture of Jesus on the wall of our hearts, and we see a lot of blank space in it, and it that needs to be filled up. And so we start to fill it up with idols. New City Church, I want to encourage us all, including myself, gaze upon the glory of God. Take in Jesus. Look to Jesus. Yes, we are a broken and idolatrous and rebellious people, but the cross is bigger than our idolatrous hearts. We saw today God unleash his judgment with swords of men, asking, who is on the Lord's side? And showing grace to those who turned to the Lord. New City Church, may we again today remember that if we have put our faith in Jesus, if we have trusted in what he has done at the cross, that his blood being shed, that our sins are forgiven, that because of that, we are on the Lord's side. And when we are on the Lord's side, do you know what God does? God declares war on our rebellious and idolatrous hearts. And because of the gospel, he doesn't destroy us, but he fights for us. And he changes us. And he daily starts to slowly transform us. We put up idols and then he comes in and says, hey, look at that. Let's take that down. And, he, and then he leads us to remove them and destroy them. And you know what God does? You know how God does that? God doesn't say, hey, look, look at all of those idols and focus on all the idols. He says, make the picture of me bigger. 
He says, come to me, all who are weary. He says, come to me and sit at my feet. He says, look at my mercy and kindness. He says, look at my character. Look at my power. Look at all the works that I have done. He says, look to the cross. He says, my son died for you so that you could be with him. He says to each of us, my grace is sufficient for you. He says to us, this this may hurt, but I'm going to remove that idol. But know that it's for your good. Know that it's because I love you. And God knows that we are just like Israel, how we regularly forget God's goodness and faithfulness and how we can be impatient and doubt and apathetic and worry and turn to various different idols. And yet he sees that. And every day he shows us mercy and grace. And he says to us, I see all of your mess. (laughs) I see the cluttered wall in your heart with all those idols hanging up. And yet every day he says to us, come to me, my beloved son. He says, come to me, my beloved daughter. He says, come to me, Christian. If you're not a Christian, he says, come to me. Come to me. If you haven't trusted in Christ today, trust in Christ. He says, come to me and see how good and faithful I am and let Jesus fill up the wall in our hearts because he knows that he is the only God that will truly satisfy our souls. God, we need you. God, would you help us to remove the idols of our heart that we daily and regularly put up and would you make the picture of you in our hearts so much bigger? Would we see your goodness? Would we see your greatness? Would we look and gaze upon your beauty and your glory and your majesty and would we just stand and be amazed, God? Would we sit in your grace and your mercy and know that you see us and you love us no matter what we bring to you? Father, we need your help. We ask this in Jesus.